Well, hello. hello. <clears throat> Pastor Vic was right. Laurie was spectacular this afternoon. And so were you, Vic. You did a great job. <clears throat> I wish I had his gifts. He's a special man. very much anymore. Thank you. Romans in four. I've been here a revised outline on paper. <clears throat> you can divide into three, four, or five. The first eight chapters are philosophical. Perhaps they they're greatest treaty on Christianity in the whole of the, of the scriptures. Paul is at his best. Verses 9 through 11 is a delightful parenthesis. I call it prophetic. I'll give you the reason for that a little bit. <clears throat> then chapters 12 through 15, a practical application of everything that he said, everything that is made comment upon. I may have chance to touch on those, but if I don't, you can read them in, in your notes. The reason why chapters 9 through 11 is sometimes called a parenthesis <clears throat> it's because when you come to the conclusion of chapter 8, and as you know, chapter 8, it's uh, well known. It opens up with no condemnation, and it concludes with no separation. And so it concludes his dissertation of a, practice, of a philosophical analysis by simply saying, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither present nor future, or any powers, neither heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In that latter part of no separation, he deals with four who's and ten what's. In, name, in identifying the four who's, he's speaking of that of the highest authorities and powers known in the universe under God. And it's those who have fallen and become rebellious spirits against God. Yet Paul says, so what? 
They don't hold any authority or any power or any control whatsoever over a child of God. Amen. We are protected. Amen. Hallelujah. <clears throat> thank God for the covering of the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. And thank God for the indwelling power of his Holy Spirit. That no matter what the devil throws at us, it doesn't stick. Because we are protected by his grace. So by ending in that pain of praise, chapter 12 opens up by simply saying, therefore, and we all know that whenever you see therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, and what is God's mercy? He depicted that from verse 19 of chapter 1 all the way through to the end of chapter 8. Upon the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And so there you have this delightful joining. It seems as though it moved from one pain of praise to a challenge to the church. But in between that, he deals with the hidden problem which underlies the whole of the book of Romans. And the hidden problem is, what about the Jews? What about Judaism? What's happened to Judaism? After all, the church in Rome was made up of Jews and Gentiles. And Paul has spoken very eloquently in the opening chapter of the gospel to the Jews first, then to let me sound like Victor Goyim. And so he wants them to understand that the gospel is all-encompassing, but there was still this niggling problem what place, what position do the Jews occupy? Because obviously they must be special. And so Paul has been addressing that question surreptitiously all the way through the first eight chapters. And now he comes and deals with it head on. And so it's divided into the three chapters have deal with three different subjects. In chapter 9, we have the sealing of Israel. Paul, I would have liked to have heard Paul preach. Obviously, he was a very, very passionate man. He wasn't just a, a delightfully intellectual that's so abstract and so off the wall. Paul was a man of intense passion. And you find this passion coming out in the first few verses of chapter 9. After all, we know who Paul is. Paul rejoiced in his calling. 
which you received from the Lord, which is documented in Acts chapter 9, where the Lord has said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. The law of first order to the Gentiles and then to the Jews. In chapter 13, Paul remembers when he began to fulfill the focus and the thrust of this calling because he simply says, on the next Sabbath, verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and taught abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barney answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first, but since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. We are not given the occasion where Paul and Barney were given the imperative that they had to go to the Jew first. We have no record of that, either in the text or in history, but it is very evident that when Ananias had simply said to him that you will appear before the Gentiles, minister to the Gentiles and to the kings, etc., etc., and also to Israel. Paul took that seriously, but there came a moment when he said, okay, I am now going to do what the Lord told me to do. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. No longer would it be to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Now it was the whosoever, be it Jew or be it Gentile, he was going to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. It's not one at the exclusion of the other, but both together, that in the eyes of the Apostle Paul, in the heart of the Apostle Paul, he wanted to reach out to those who needed the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Paul also could not evade the fact of not only confirming his calling, but the cost of his calling. Because we are, we are it's recorded throughout the book of Acts that wherever Paul went, he suffered persecution and difficulty and trauma, particularly from the Jewish community. And so obviously, you would think that the Apostle Paul would, would build up some umbrage or some antagonism in his heart and say, I'm through with those jokers. Have you ever given up on anyone? I give up on them. Boom. You take the, your shoes off your feet and you slap them together and something like, there, I hand them over to you, God, and please don't bug me with them anymore. Paul never did that. After all he suffered at the hands of uh, the Judaizers and particularly the sect of the Pharisees, he never ever gave up on them. And so, 
I begin to notice in his passion. Look at his sincerity. In verse 1, and hear the passion of Paul coming really through. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. He's not uttering pious platitudes. He understands that every time he speaks in the name of the Lord, he's speaking before the Lord. And because he's speaking in the name of the Lord and before the Lord, every word will be accountable. That's why it is said that teachers are worthy of double honor is because they will be judged at a different level to others simply because words matter. What you say happens to be important. Whether you say it in jest or whether you say it seriously, God is interested and pays attention to what you say, particularly when you use it or accentuate it by the use of his name. And so he is concerned, he's passionate about what he says about Jesus. But notice his sorrow, not just his sincerity, his sorrow in verse two. I have great sorrow and increasing anguish in my heart. There was a deep ache in the depths of his psyche. It was always just below the surface. Every parent knows this feeling. In the natural, what Paul was feeling in the spiritual. Oh, a while back, a young mother, well, she wasn't so young, excuse me, but everybody's young when I look at them. <clears throat> Even Vic. You know, he's, he's just a boy. But she had a, a late teenage son. And she asked the question, Des, when do you stop worrying about your kids? Oh, I said, I can, I can give the precise moment. I said, you can? I said, yes. Said, how old is he? Oh, I said, it's got nothing to do with how old he is. It's when you die. <laughs> I said, the moment you breathe your last, you quit worrying about your kids. Until then, they're always at the back of your mind. Whether they are young, whether they are teenagers, or whether they're marrying or kids of their own, you wonder, I wonder what they're doing now. Or when you get a phone call to someone say that they've had a tough day, something irks within your heart. That's how Paul felt about his Jewish friends. That's how Paul felt about his family. It was always just below the surface. This passion, this, this desire, this longing for them. He said, I have great great heartache and continual grief in my heart. But look at his spirituality. 
Paul then goes on into the state of uh, illusion. He says, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. In his passion, he sounded like the prophet Moses. When Moses, who was the greatest prophetic priest that Israel ever had, who during the rejection of the people by God at the incident of the golden calf, and God said, you take them up, I'll send an angel with you, but I'm not gonna go with them. And Moses said, if you don't go with them, send it on hands. And he asked to be their sacrifice so that they might be delivered. This is what Paul is saying. I would give my life. But Paul knew he was too late. He could not give his life for Israel because someone had already given his life. His name is Jesus. And there was to be no other sacrifice. Oh, yes, there's sacrifice in service. But no other one could pay the penalty because the penalty is paid. Paid in full. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. But here, this spirituality is simply saying, I would do it if I had the opportunity. I would do it willingly. The love and the passion that he has for his people, that he has for his day and for his generation. But look in verses 4 and 5. Because it appears as though the question pops up. Why the Jews? What's so important about the Jews? Why is everybody just talking about the significance of the Jews? And Paul says, let me tell you about the Jews. In verse 4, he goes on to say, theirs is the adoption of sons. The compound of the Greek term literally indicates the selecting of a child. The bringing them to yourself. And Paul says, God brought them to himself. He adopted them. When did he do it? It started in Ur of the Chaldees. When Terah, who was an idol maker, and there's a legend whether the legend is true or no, it's a terrific legend. Terah had been commissioned to build some fabulous idols for the Nimrod dynasty. And he had finished several of these idols. And there was one in particular. It was an ugly, awesome-looking thing. 
And Terah asked Abram, his son, I want you to take care of the shop while I go on business. And Abram said, yes, dad. As soon as his dad had gotten on a camel and ridden down the road, Abram picks up a stick and smashes every idol in, in the shop. When his father came back and saw the desolation of all the idols broken and smashed on the floor, he said, I told you to take care of them. He said, Dad, I tried. <laughs> but it was totally out of my control. He said, that big one. He said, your pride and joy, for whatever reason, became angry. And it pounced. And it began destroying. And so he said, wanting to protect the others, I swung and I broke the big one. And his dad said, you're a fool. Their calf is out of wood and stone. To which Abraham said, then dad, why do you worship them? But that is a legend. A well-documented legend in Jewish literature. In fact, it goes on. Because of the destruction of the idol that the authorities came, arrested Abram, and threw him into a fiery pit. That's the area where they got so much oil, oil oozes at the surface. And so they threw him into the fiery pit. His brother Heron jumped into the pit to try to rescue his brother Abram. Heron died. Abram walked out unscathed. And that is the reason why Abram had such an affection for Lot. Because Lot's dad lost his life trying to save his brother. And so Abram felt an obligation to take care of his younger, this young nephew because of what had happened to his dad. Now, that was a useless piece of information, wasn't it? <laughs> but that's where the adoption started. And God said to Abram, get out of this country, leave your family, and go to the place where I will show you. And it says that Abram stepped over, crossed over, the Hebrew word is Ebar, and that root for Hebrew is those who cross over. That's where the adoption started, because they crossed over. From darkness to light, from slavery in, their, in obedience to the Lord, they crossed over. And Paul said, 
You want to talk with the Jews? Number one, they're chosen, adopted. Number two, theirs is the Shekinah, the divine glory. Israel and Israel alone had the privilege of witnessing the seal of his presence. It is manifested over the temple, manifested at the dedication of the temple, manifested over the tabernacle. The seal of God's presence. Can you hear an echo? When you're talking of what God did for Israel, can you hear the echo? Because we too have been chosen. We too have crossed over. We too know what it is to have the seal of his presence. Can you hear Jesus' voice still saying, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the ages? We sing the song, he's here right now to meet our needs. Paul said, you ask me about the Jewish problem? Let me give you another one. Theirs have to be the contract. No, theirs have to be the covenants. It was God made with Abram. Which God reconstituted to Moses, which God re reaffirmed to Joshua, which God reestablished through David, that through almost every year and every epoch, God made a covenant. And my friend, we have been sealed by the Spirit of promise. We too have a promise. We too have a covenant. Ah, but Jeremiah also speaks that there would come a time there would be a new covenant. In fact, he says in Jeremiah chapter 31, 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob, Jacob uh, Judah. I'm just trying to be too much like Vic, and I can't do it. He's a smarter man than I'll ever be. Under the Mosaic covenant, they received the law. Oh, I know that they'd been Two laws given to Adam in the garden. I know that there were seven laws given to Noah. But there were ten given to Moses. And the ten that were given to Moses was to cause Israel to stop being a group of slaves to becoming a holy nation.
how to live as sons instead of living as slaves. And Paul says, theirs with the giving of the law. But not only the giving of the law, but they were the ones who received the insight and the principle of temple worship. The liturgical form as well as the legal format. Did you know that up until the time of the Jews, no one knew how to worship the Lord? They did what they thought was right. Whatever came into their imagination, that's what they performed. It wasn't until the Lord made the, the Mosaic Covenant. He said, no, I want you to let the people know this is how they are to worship. You see, we were born with the instinct to worship. In fact, there's a hole in our heart which cannot be filled, Augustine said, until it is filled for you. But just because the hole is there, that doesn't mean to say we know how to fill it. And so we enter into all kinds of strange things. Hug a tree and get peace. Huh? The last time I hugged a tree, all I got was splinters. <laughs> Left to our own imagination. We don't worship according to our instinct. We are called to worship according to how he wants to be worshipped. In fact, men learn this the hard way when they get married. <laughs> you don't love the way that you want to love, you love the way that she needs to be loved. And she's the only one who can tell you that. God said, this is how I want you to live. And this is how I want you to worship. Jesus said, the Father looking for those who worship in spirit and in truth. But Paul said, what's the value of the Jews? Well, they're the ones who got the patriarchs. They come from the stem, the root of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Jacob. Now I sound like Vic. Now I really sound like Vic. What a heritage. But it goes on. It's through them we get the lineage of the Messiah. He is the seed of woman. He is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through his seed. He is David's greatest son. 
His name is Jesus. But there are two other things which are not mentioned by Paul in this chapter. And you can tell, I'm, I'm going to finish Romans tonight. I'm on verse 4. But you're blessed. This is my last night. Hallelujah. Listen. Please hear me. If it had not been for the Jewish nation, we would not know the name of God. Just think of the thousands and thousands of names that's been attributed to God. He's the creator, Allah. Sorry, Allah. You can go through the, the trinity of the gods in Hinduism and then the thousands of lesser gods that, that exist underneath them. It's the Jews who gave us his name. His name is yod Hair, fav Hair. We pronounce it Jehovah. No one knows how to pronounce it. The only people who understood the, the, real, the reality and the pronunciation of the name was the high priest. And he was only allowed to utter it one time a year when he came out of the Holiest of holies on the day of Yom Kippur. But that died. And since then we have all kinds of enunciations. Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, and so on. We can write it. But it's the Jews who gave to us his name. And because we have his name, it was said in Judaism, if you knew the name of God, if you could pronounce the name of God, then nothing would be impossible to you. Am I boring you tonight? No. Forgive me if I am. Give me a few more minutes and I'll get to, I'll get to the boring part. That's why some of the Pharisees, they thought Jesus performed miracles because he'd accidentally come across the name of God. And yet it is the Lord Jesus who in his high priestly prayer to the Father says, I have given them thy name. Because the access to that name is the name Yeshua, Jesus. You alone are worthy of our praise forever. You, my Lord, seated with the Father 
on the throne of heaven forever. You, my Lord. Therefore we go in his name. His name gives us access to the Father. And the name of Jesus makes the name of the Father accessible to any situation. And it's the Jews who give us access to his name. But there's something else that Paul doesn't make mention in this chapter. Not only is it the Jews who give us insight to the dynamic of his name, it's the Jews who give us insight to his nature. Up until then, you talk to people about the gods. They're capricious. They're angry. You talk to the Jews. He's faithful. He's good. He's long-suffering. But it's the Jews who gave us the insight. Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Elohim, Sevaot. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We would never have had insight or understanding to either the name or the nature of our glorious Lord if it had not been for the Jews. So why the Jews? Let Paul answer that question because he does. Paul in his position. So then the question is asked. So, looking at the state of Israel, has God failed? Has his promise failed? Has his covenant failed? Because some parts of the covenants are conditional. If you do, I will do. If you do, I will do. But there are other parts which are unconditional. God says, I will do, period, whatever that means. Paul answered that question. No, God's word has not failed. And then he throws a spanner in the works. Do you use that term over here? Do you use that term? Uh, that's an old English term. A monkey wrench, yeah. Put a monkey wrench in the wheel and blow all the spokes. And Paul says, for not all who are descended from Jacob 
are Israelites. No, because their descendants are they all Avram's children. On the contrary. See, just because they were the seed of Abram, that doesn't make them covenantal people. Esau wasn't a covenantal person. Of the great covenant, although the Lord gave him a promise. Ishmael was not a covenantal person, though God gave him a promise that he'd become a father of many nations. Paul begins to underscore the fact that it's more than just belonging to the flesh. It's been part of by the spirit. And it has to do with faith. And he spent a whole chapter underscoring this in chapter four, speaking of the faith of Abraham and how it was effective and effectual the outworking of God's grace. But let me move from chapter 9. You read the rest. Very, very fascinating. Very, very interesting. Let me come to chapter 10. If chapter 9 was the sealing of Israel, chapter 10 is the saving of it. When this was read to the church at Rome, it would call the congregation to gasp. Look at his prayer. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. In chapter 9, he's dealing with Israel of the past. In chapter 10, he's dealing with Israel in the present. When it comes to chapter 11, he deals with Israel in prophecy in the future. And so this whole problem of Judaism, which is a bone of contention to the early church, Paul is unraveling it by the grace of God. This plaintive cry underscores two major themes. One, it shows Paul's heart in the matter. He cares deeply for his people. My heart's desire, my heart's passion and prayer to God for Israel. It's not a flippant, it's not just a pouring out of just words. It comes from a very deep 
of his being as he cries out. And what's his prayer? He's praying that the Jews would be saved. I can understand the Apostle Paul saying this in the year 71 AD. Because the temple had just been devastated by Titus. The sacred items have been taken away. But Paul is not saying this in AD 71. He's saying this in the early AD 50s. The liturgical form, the, sorry, the liturgical format was still in vogue. They still offered the offerings in the morning, the offerings in the evening. The priest went about lighting the candle, the menorah, and doing all those things, but it didn't mean anything anymore because there was one who hung upon a tree and upon him were the sins and the penalties of not only the Jews but the whole world and he paid the price in full and when Jesus cried, it is finished, he validated every offering and every sacrifice which had ever been made in the temple. Every offering which had been given in the desert was accepted and acceptable because one had paid the full price. Blessed be the name of Jesus. He validated everything that they'd done in faith. But now that one had offered the sacrifice once for all, the other was just religious stuff. God, if I'm violating you, forgive me for my word. It was just a religious token. Meaningful to many, but offered by a high priest who was illegitimate. He was not of the tribe of Levi. Therefore, his offering was unconstitutional and unacceptable. They could go through the route and it was very, very impressive. 
especially so for the high priest, because he was only allowed to wear his sacred robes on three days a year. The Romans kept the robes hidden so he couldn't go parading around the country showing off his authority. But on the three major feast days, they allowed him to wear his robes. And as soon as the sun set, he had to take them off and the Romans took them back and held them sealed. They had a fake priest offering well, an offering which is not which is inconsequential because I saw one hanging on a tree. Janelda and what's her what's the name? The other lady? They sang the first song this afternoon at the funeral on an old, on a hill far away, stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. For I love that old cross. Because he paid it for sinners such as I. No need for another sacrifice. No need for another offering for the covering of sin. Because if we say we do not sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and do for us what he did for the rest, for all of Israel in the past. He covers it. Because he paid the price. Paul goes on to say, and I need a hurry to a close. I can testify about them that they're zealous. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. But then he makes a statement in verse 12. For now there is no difference between Yehuda and the Goim. Why? Because the same Lord is Lord of all. And richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he presents the problem. He asks four questions. How then can they call? on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the name of the one who they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? And he quotes Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul gives an answer In verse 17, consequently faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. It's the name of Jesus 
which brings salvation. It's the name of Jesus which offers the covering for sin. It's the name of Jesus. Every member of the family of Abraham who embraces Jesus become members of the new covenant, not just members of the old. The old will be in vogue as long as God lives, but the new came into vogue and came into being at the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Isaiah foresaw a problem. For Isaiah asked the question, but not all the Israelites accepted the good news. They couldn't accept, they couldn't believe it, they couldn't embrace it. For Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our message? And so Paul asked the question, but I asked, did they not hear? Of course they did. Because the voice of God went throughout the earth. A Jewish family who have not accepted Jesus abide by an old covenant when it's mingled by faith. But those that embrace Jesus enter into a new covenant which is also experienced by faith. And so that brings me to chapter 11. Sorry for jumping over so much. Chapter 11, there are two penetrating, perplexing questions in chapter 11. The first question is found in verses 1 through 10. Has Israel been rejected? And Paul says, no, certainly not. He says, I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. So his first answer is personal. The second answer is historical. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And he gave the illustration of Elijah who simply said, God, you better protect me because I'm the only guy left. And God said, uh-uh. I got a stack of guys hiding in caves that you know nothing at all about. The third answer is spiritual. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were grace, it would no longer be grace. And so those who by faith have accepted Jesus 
have entered into the realm of the arena and the blessing of the new covenant. The others who live by faith in the old are still living under the portals of the old covenant. Those who are living under the portals of the old covenant are still waiting for Messiah to come. Those who are living under the portals of the new covenant, they already know that Messiah has already come, but he's coming again. And when he comes again, the eyes of those Jews who've been living under the old covenant, the eyes will pop open and say, wow! A famous rabbi in the city of Houston seven years ago talked to a friend of mine. Made the statement. He said, if Jesus is the Messiah, when he comes back, I'm going to ask him, how come you didn't reveal yourself sooner? And my friend said, it's because you're not reading the right parts of the book. He said, for over 1900 years, you refused to read Isaiah 53 because it sounded too much like the, the Christian Jesus. And yet when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found the full book of Isaiah. It is there all the time. That's why it's important, that's why it's imperative that we not only tell them with our lips, but we show it with our lives. And the church has a lousy testimony when it comes to Jewish people. From the third century onward, bile and bitterness a spewed from the mouths of the leaders of the Christian church, starting with Chrysostom. I'm going right on through the pork programs, the crusades, all done in the name of Jesus. That was as pagan as anything could ever be. Political paganism. But they didn't know any different. But there's coming a day, hallelujah, a glorious day, when the eyes will be opened. Let me close. Paul says, and so I want you Gentiles, I want you Christians, I want you believers, Jew or Gentile, I want you to be careful. He said, don't brag. 
about what you are. Is it because the God who allowed you as a wild olive to be grafted into the good olive tree and that the useless branches of the old olive tree he allowed them to be cut off which is what Jesus says in John chapter 15 he said but don't brag because he who grafted you in can graft you out you are in because of grace you are in because of favor. You are in not because you deserve it. You are in because he deserves it. And he who hath grafted you in, he will bring the original tree back to life. That's the message of chapter 11. Israel in the future. They're going to come to life. That's the theme at the latter part of Joel. That's the theme of the latter part of Obadiah. That's the theme of the, of the 12 little prophets. That there's coming a day. A glorious day. When we shall have our eyes opened and we shall see him as he is. And the Jews will have their eyes opened and they'll see what he's done. And together we'll sing, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. I got three minutes, so let me tell you the chapters 12, 13, and 14. Because the first eight chapters tells us how to get right with God. From chapter 12, it tells us how to live right with God. It's in your notes. Let me look at nine. Chapter 12. How to have genuine reverence for the Lord, for God. Chapter 13, how to show respect for the state. It tells you, what you what's our attitude supposed to be toward the state, toward the government. Obey the government. And how would you show respect to the state? Pay your taxes. And obey their laws as long as it doesn't violate your conscience. That's the conscience clause in chapter 13. And then chapter 14. <clears throat> Not only how to reverence the Lord, how to respect the state, but then how to relate to one another. 
as good Christians ought to do. And so, that's Romans in four. As I opened up my little conversation four weeks ago, there are many ways to look at the Grand Canyon. You can look at it by commercial flight, flying over from Dallas to San Francisco. You'll see the Grand Canyon. Or you can take one of those helicopter rides. You'll see the Grand Canyon a lot better that way. Or you can hike through it. We have looked at Romans from a commercial airliner. I pray that you'll go back and look at it as though you're in a helicopter. And then one day, you look at it as though you're hiking through the wood. Good night. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank God Jesus is Lord. <laughs>